Welcome to Amona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art in Laconner, Washington. On April 28th, Mona hosted Coffee with Local Artist Bob Abrams and Chuck Bancuti. In part two of this Mona Moment, we will be hearing from Chuck Bancuti. Chuck is a photographer and has been documenting life on Native American reservations for the past 30 years. He will be sharing insights from his life and work with us over some coffee. We hope you enjoy this Mona moment. Hi, everyone. I'm going to start by giving you a little bit of information about myself. I was born in Budapest, Hungary, and my family and I arrived in the United States in 1960. My passion for photography started at a very early age and has continued throughout my photographic career. I was fortunate to be allowed in the late 1960s to hang out with some very profound artists from Los Angeles to San Francisco. They were painters, sculptors, printmakers. This would be the foundation of my understanding of light, composition, and color. Creativity would follow in all types of experimentation and photography. My fine art photography started in the early 70s, and in the mid-70s, my commercial career would begin. I began working with commercial agencies in Hollywood. They represented celebrities, children, and adult commercial actors. While I was honing my photographic skills, I was working out of my photographic studio located in Hollywood. As a photographer, I had to understand professional flash equipment, light meters, and all the various film types and cameras. This is way before the digital age. Working with film, I spent many hours in a dark room printing my work. I still use film today and prefer it to digital. By scanning film images, I can digitize and do all the work which was previously done in the dark room on my computer. Throughout my commercial career, I have been published on magazine covers and editorials, all over the world. I have created album covers, posters, and worked on Hollywood feature films. In my photographic career, I have created many timeless images. In the late 1980s, while I was working as a professional photographer in Los Angeles, I decided to take a trip to Arizona and tour the Southwest. I was backpacking in Navajo National Monument, which has two Anasazi cliff dwellings. When I met Veronica Yo, a Diné Navajo woman, she would be the start of what was to become a spiritual journey for me. She worked as a guide in Canyon de Chez, located in the northeast part of Arizona. This is on the Navajo reservation. The Hasselblad camera has been my choice for working with Native Americans. All my experience in my fine art and commercial work would now be utilized in photographing and documenting Native Americans and the landscapes they live on. The Diné, when I say this to you guys, is the word that the Navajos prefer today. The Navajo, that word came from the Spanish and they don't really care for it, so it's been switched. So I usually give you both, but Diné is what they prefer would be the start, and by going to gatherings and powwows, I was invited to so many other Native American regions. Here I would learn about their culture, history, 
and how they lived in the past. Many are striving to live in their traditional ways while coexisting in the modern world. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it was very difficult for me to uh, put together in the time frame allowed to give you guys a complete story of what I've done for the last 30 years. So what you're going to see is uh, some images from Arizona, South Dakota, New Mexico, and Montana. And with that, we can start the slides. Okay, <clears throat> this is uh, Canyon de Chez, and this is an overlook from above the rim of the canyon. Um, it's one of many, if you've ever, I don't know if any of you have ever traveled to this particular part of Arizona, but it's a spectacular place, I think more so than the Grand Canyon. When you look down at the bottom, you'll see some areas that are shaped out. These are areas where people live in the summer months. They usually have a hogan and they have their animals with them. In the winter months, this particular place gets too cold, so they move up to the top rim of the canyon and they usually have a small home up there. And it isn't that they're wealthy that they have more than one home, but it's more on the basis of uh, how the weather changes during different times of the year. Kido. <clears throat> no, I'm good. This is one of many Anasazi ruins. If you look towards the bottom, you'll see some buildings there. There's a number of these uh, cliff dwellings that uh, date back to hundreds and hundreds of years. There's, I don't know exactly how many, but there's numerous cliff dwellings within the canyon. And there, by the way, I should mention that there are two canyons. There's Canyon del Morte, and then there's Canyon de Chez, and they kind of V off from each other. Um, so when you're standing at the floor level and you look up at this cliff dwelling, one of the things that I see is how people were able to get in and out because they lived in this particular space and they used footholds and ropes, but there was no ladders, there was no uh, switchback trails. So it's a pretty amazing thing to see. Okay. This is a Dene elder, her name is Annie Yazi, and she is standing in front of the oldest Hogan in uh, Canyon de Chez. And one of the things that I want to mention to you that when you see a Hogan with a rounded roof of mud compared to the angular, more octagonal shape, hard edge surface, this would be considered a female Hogan and the other would be considered a male Hogan. She used to, uh, she was no longer herding her sheep because she just couldn't handle it physically and her daughter has taken over, but uh, this is a really magnificent Hogan that's really intact. Okay. One of the things that I wanted to tell you is that uh, if you go to Canyon de Chez, this is called White House Ruin Trail, and it is the only trail you can walk down without a guide. If you want to go into the canyon, there's two ways to do it. You can take a hike, or you can take a Jeep tour, and, but either way, you have to hire a guide. This particular spot <clears throat> is the only one where you're allowed to go in on your own and hike down about a 1,200 foot switchback. And when you get down to the very bottom, as you can see the trail kind of towards the bottom half of the picture, uh, you'll come up to uh, White House Ruin. Okay.
This is Marie Jake. <clears throat> this is a Diné elder that I have photographed over the last 30 years. She is actually, her hogan, as you can see, is the male type hogan with the different roof. When you get down to the bottom of White House Ruin Trail, this is her place. And as you come off the trail to the right of it is where she stays in the summer months. There's a big giant sign that says, no photography. And the first time I went there, I was photographing everything. And uh, she came up to me and uh, demanded a dollar, which I gave her. And then we sort of became friends after a period of time. And I've photographed her for, uh, like I say, for the past 30 years. One of the things that she mentioned to me is that the uh, fence that's behind the Hogan, I think you can see part of it, was built by her father 60 years ago, and it still stands. So there's things that are really um, amazing how they have endured weather and time and uh, the people itself. Okay. Here I am with Veronica Yo, the lady who started this whole project uh, after I met her at uh, Navajo National Monument. And um, we had a really long relationship <clears throat> working together. And unfortunately, like so many times you see on reservations where drugs and alcohol take people's lives, we lost her at age 41. And it was a real shock to me because I was like, at the time, I think 10 years older than her. And I didn't think that would ever happen. So uh, she's gone, but uh, I've made such close relationships with people that I've met over the years. And I wanted to mention, because I think this is important. <clears throat> the reason a lot of people don't do this kind of work is because it takes a building of a foundation and creating a relationship with these people. And it took me many, many years before I was really kind of people opened up to you. And part of that is, is that you're true to your word. And I'm very direct and that seems to really work with Native Americans. You know, they like direct and um, it's been something that has worked out quite well for me. And so there are numerous people in this area that I continue to see and enjoy. It's almost like seeing family instead of just people that you've met over a period of time. Okay. <clears throat> this particular spot is uh, halfway into Canyon de Chez, and this big rock formation on the right is called the Stronghold of the Navajo. The reason they gave it that name is because when Kit Carson in the 1800s would ride in, to round up the Navajos, the Navajo adults and children would crawl on top and lay flat and he rode around because there's a couple trails different directions and he wasn't able to capture the Navajos because at that period of time they were being marched to Fort Defiance where they were held captive. And uh, so this is a very significant location in the canyon. When you drive into the canyon, <clears throat> one of the things that you see is that what you're driving in is actually at times, different times of the year, is a riverbed. And different times there's more water than not. And the other part is these horses are just wild horses that are just roaming around, not only inside the canyon, but up on the plateau as well. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting to see these guys just roaming around. This Diné elder is named Tully. <clears throat> he worked for the railroad for 36 years of his life and now is retired and um, lives with his wife and just has his sheep and hogan and uh, very nice person.
This is Jerome. He's a young Navajo. And one of the things that I wanted to mention that I have seen over a repeated time period is that it's very difficult for all these people <coughs> that are young to, uh, to find work. So a lot of people who were his age category end up going to Phoenix or Flagstaff off reservation to work and then they come back on the weekends. Um, he currently has a son and is married and uh, is doing quite well. I put this color image in, even though I love black and white, because I wanted you to get a sense of what it's like when you're inside the canyon and the colors. My favorite time period for this place is uh, September, October. The leaves change golden yellow. They fall onto the floor of the canyon. Uh, the rock formations have all these different, almost oxidized kind of look to them, and the green foliage. It's really a spectacular looking spot. and. You kind of get a sense of the sandy soil that you're driving in on too. There is some quicksand in area, so you have to know where you're going. It used to be that you could, if you had a four-wheel drive vehicle, you could drive yourself in. That no longer is true because somebody flipped a car and ended up dying. So they've changed the law. So now the only way to go in is either hike or you can hire a guide with a Jeep and they'll take you in, but you can no longer drive in yourself. <clears throat> this lady's name is Pauline Whitesinger. I met her, gosh, probably 20 years ago. She lives in an area, she actually lives on the Hopi Reservation, Second Mesa, and it's near a place called Big Mountain. <clears throat> she, um, more than her, let me back up a little bit, her past, all the families in the uh, certain part of 1800s were moved onto the Hopi Reservation. The government decided to move some of the Navajos onto the Hopi Res. In the 1960s, <clears throat> they decided they were going to move the Navajos back off the Hopi Reservation, and they didn't necessarily find places for them on the Navajo Res, but they were going to move them into like Phoenix and areas like that and these people couldn't survive they can't go into a housing complex and when they've lived free on the land with their animals and their families and so it uh, it's destroyed some of the people and this still continues on today I've had some experiences where I've drove into a family's compound and uh, the most recent was about six seven years ago where a guy drew a bow and arrow and was ready to shoot me because he didn't know who I was because up to him I was a white guy coming in with a truck and I could be one of these people that's trying to relocate his grandma. And um, the situation was diffused, but <clears throat> it's still... I just wanted to make a point that is still going on today. A lot of people have no idea that this is going on and uh, the struggle they? continues. Who What's that? This? Who are the they that you're talking about? The government, the federal government. Yeah. The Hopi and the Navajo have lived well together, but I think because the population has grown and we're talking, you know, 100 years or more ago, things have changed. And the Hopis want some of their land back. Um, they're basically surrounded by the Navajo reservation because they're just a small reservation within this big expanse. The Navajo reservation, by the way, is the biggest in the United States. So, um, 
I don't know really exactly what to say about it, but it just continues on. And so instead of the federal government trying to find some sort of solution where they would remain on the Navajo reservation, maybe in a different area, they seem to want to take them out and put them into the world we exist in, which doesn't work. This is a, a place, I think you're probably most of you have heard of Sturgis, South, South Dakota, where the motorcycle rally takes place. This is a little bit northeast of Sturgis, just outside of it, and this mountain is called Bear Butte. It is probably one of the most significant mountains in all of the United States for all the Native Americans, because this is where they come to do vision quest, where they pray, where they do healings, and where they do sweats. Um, I was taken here by a Lakota woman the first time I went to Pine Ridge Reservation, and um, she had me do a tobacco offering, which worked out pretty good, as, a, as I will tell you as the uh, images come up. Okay. When you look at the mountainside, you will see parts of materials tied to branches. These represent prayers. It is no different than the Tibetan prayer flags that you see. I think people, some people have them around here. It's uh, all over the mountainside, and it's, uh, it's an incredible energized spot. Okay. This is the um, Wounded Knee Memorial. And I guess everybody has a different uh, representation of what they feel. I, I feel a lot of energy from this place when I stepped on it the very first time. And if you're standing in between the two pillars looking kind of southeast, you would see the uh, actual massacre site of Wounded Knee. Um, inside those chain link fence gates is a big huge monument with all the names of the people that have passed away. Okay. This is Gary Rowland. He's a Oglala Lakota man who I met who actually runs uh, the Wounded Knee Museum right next to that memorial. Um, it's a small museum, but it's really thorough in terms of uh, showing you the history of what has taken place from the Wounded Knee Massacre up till today, because there was also, I don't know if you guys know, but there was an occupation in the 70s with the Lakota holding off the FBI and the federal agencies. Uh, it became a big deal. Okay. This is the story that I want to get to. So when I went with this woman to uh, the Lakota reservation, she says, I'm going to introduce you to Ed Ironcloud III. He's the keeper of the buffalo. Somehow, in my infinite wisdom, I spun this into that he's kind of like a shaman with the buffalo and that he would be protecting me. So we go up to the hills, about an hour ride, and... Um, I just grab my Hasselblad and my gear and I walk out into this herd of buffalo and this guy is one of the big bulls. He's about the size of a gigantic SUV and if you've ever seen a Hasselblad camera, it has a Zeiss lens which is like a microscope and his eye just went like this, you know, like a saucer. And I'm thinking, well, he's not very comfortable and I noticed that if I moved real quickly, they would jump, you know, and so I was moving slowly. And uh, I go back to the pickup, and Ed Ironcloud is sitting inside the back of the pickup. So my first thought is, 
well, if this guy is some kind of a shaman, he's not really, why isn't he standing behind me like doing this, you know, with the buffalo? So I said, hey, Ed, I said, maybe I'm confused. What is it exactly that you do with the buffalo? And he said, uh, I fix fences. You know, there's like uh, thousands of acres that they roam here. And he goes, I feed them and I do this kind of stuff. And I go, oh, Christ, you know. So <laughs> I actually went back after this and photographed the herd. And I think that tobacco offering that I did at Bear Butte with this Lakota lady uh, really helped because I never got injured. But the following day, I was in the back of the pickup and I was doing some video work and these guys were slamming into the pickup, like, you know, big time. So I realized I could have been hurt. And uh, when I got back to uh, LA and I talked to an Apache native friend of mine, and I told him the story and he said, uh, well, when you were out there, were you afraid? I said, no, I thought this guy was working everything in the backgrounds, but nothing, <laughs> nothing was being worked. You know, it was like sheer stupidity, I guess. So, anyway, that's the story behind that. This is the kind of landscape that they roam on. I think it's spectacular looking uh, landscape. There's hills, there's grasslands, there's arroyos. It's just, I think around the Pine Ridge Reservation, the land is really, really beautiful. These two guys happen to be, uh, this is sort of after the fact, but on the way up to uh, photograph the buffaloes, I came across these two young Lakota guys, kids, and uh, I just had to get a picture of this because the tall guy is on the small horse and the short kid is on the big horse, and I just thought it was an interesting <laughs> dynamics of this whole thing. Okay. Okay, now we're in a place called Reducio. New Mexico. It is under Albuquerque. It's a Mescalero Apache reservation. And I was invited by um, an actor friend of mine who's an Apache who was going to the ceremony, which was a coming of age ceremony for this 14 year old girl named Twyla. And uh, these are the ceremonial dancers that dance every day for a five day period. Um, they don't dance all day. Usually it's in the evening, but the fire never goes out. The fire stays lit the whole five days. And um, it was really cold. I, I was going to the Navajo Reservation, which is kind of low desert. These guys were 7,000 feet. So I arrived out of uh, Los Angeles in shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. And they said, uh, did you bring any clothes? And I said, not much. You know, and they said, well, you're going to be in trouble because we're high. And it, got, it really got cold at nighttime. So uh, we managed to get through it. but. Uh, it was a pretty incredible experience. Okay. And this is Twyla. She uh, had this absolutely beautiful, beautiful dress that, that was made for her and the shells and the beads and uh, what you see on the crown of her head and the bridge of her nose is corn pollen, which is sacred to natives. And during this five day period for the ceremony, you could go up to her and she could bless you. And she basically put corn pollen onto you. And um, it was a magical time. Okay. This is the last image. This is Ivan Naraho. He is a Blackfeet Native American out of Montana. We met while I was working in Hollywood as a commercial photographer. And he had done many films. He passed away in the early 2000s. 
but uh, one of the last things he did with his career was when uh, France built Disneyland, there was a Buffalo Bill Wild West show that they put together, and he played Sitting Bull, and every day he'd ride out, and um, just a terrific guy. So this outfit that he had is an original, it's the original attire they would have wore at that time period, back in the 1800s, and uh, it, was, it was incredible. So uh, I think that's it. If you guys have any questions. Uh, Thank you. I mean, I have a question for so when's the last time you went to Canyon de Shea? Oh, thank you. Right about five years ago, but I'm going back this, this fall. Okay, so you're still, you're going to continue. Oh, yeah, so yeah. Any no. of the people that you've talked about, are they still with I us? Or? Yeah, I believe, uh, I believe Jeff Hoffman is still Yeah, I believe Marie Jake is, but she's no longer um, able to herd her sheep. You know, she, used to, um, she used to go from her Hogan up to the top every day. It's 1,200 foot switchback trails. And she was in her, she was Bob's age. She was in her 80s. And, uh, well, I just, mean, I just mean she wasn't a kid. And she, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a heck of an undertaking to be able to do that on a daily basis because a lot of people, if you did it once, that'd be it. But she did it every day. So when I saw her last, which was probably about six, seven years ago, she had had a heart attack going up this switchback trail, and she was just laying there, and then she didn't get home because she's got a small, modest home on the top. So her family came down and found her, picked her up. They took her to the hospital. She was okay. She recovered. And when I saw her, she was at the house, and... Uh, well, this is an interesting story. I think you guys will get a kick out of. So she's got a, a small, modest home up above, and it has kind of a red roofing material. And so I thought I'd pick the house that was her house, but it wasn't. It was some other guy's house. And the door was open, so I just walked in, and I said, Marie, and this guy's laying on the sofa, and he said, you better... You better be from the lottery commission. <laughs> the first thing, you know, I said, I'm looking for Marie Jake. He goes, you got the wrong damn house. She's over <laughs> so, anyway, um, she was she was such a neat lady. I wish I could have showed you guys a picture of her when she was young. She was beautiful. She's very, very petite, very tiny. And um, so she's still around, but I'm not sure she's dealing with the sheep, you know, and so... Uh, it's hard to condense all this stuff because I've got a really great image of her uh, out in the field working the sheep. And uh, I had this vision of her coming towards me with the sheep, sort of like railroad tracks going off into the distance. And every time the sheep saw me, I guess I scared them so they would go one direction or another. And uh, an hour later when we came back, because Marie didn't speak any English, my friend Veronica, interpreted and she said uh she was asking me why the hell this white man has been chasing her all over <laughs> all over hell for an hour <laughs> and i said because i had this thought but anyway we ended up getting a photograph of her kind of going sideways which i think is a really terrific photograph and uh so just been some great experiences and i look forward to going back and doing more have you worked with i mean extensively with the Navajo or the yeah, it started with the Navajo, so that's more extensive than the others, but I've been to uh, the uh, Lakota Reservation quite a few times. I was invited to a powwow there, but they wouldn't allow me to take any photographs at that, which was 
really hard because what they do is, you know, cutting to their chest, tied to the pole. It's like some of the films I'm sure that you've seen in the past. And so it would make incredible photographs. And then I got to see the ghost dance um, one time and they also didn't allow that. And that was just an incredible experience. But um, the Lakota guys, when I arrived for this powwow said, we know what you do. We know you're a photographer, and if you try to take pictures, we're going to kill you. And I said, and I said that sounds fair. <laughs> so no photos. You know? So, uh, so it's been a lot of uh, a lot of crazy experiences, and I think uh, one of the more memorable ones that I didn't tell you all the slides was on was. Uh, when I went to uh, the Lakota Reservation at Pine Ridge, you have to have permission by the Park Services and the um, tribal members to go into what's called the Badlands, because there's actually two Badlands. One is in Pine Ridge and the other one is off the reservation. And I wanted to go into the one that's on the reservation because it's got a lot of history of things that have occurred there. And uh, the Park Service said, no problem. These other guys said, we don't know who the hell you are. We don't know what you want. I said, well, how about giving me the opportunity to come in and talk to you and uh, get a chance to tell you what I do, and then you could make your decision, and I'll honor it. So I get in there. I'm not even in there two minutes. These guys are as big as I am and bigger. <clears throat> and this one guy who I'm talking to right across says to me, uh, are you recording our conversation? And I'm thinking, why? You know, I mean, I just arrived. And so then I realized that this all goes back to uh, the occupation at Wounded Knee and the mistrust of FBI, police. And so uh, I have a pretty good sense of humor. So I said to the guy, well, I said, you know, it'd be really good if you could direct your voice to the heel of my shoe, because that's where the hidden microphone is. And uh, I love these wonderful silent moments where it all just goes blank, you know, because everybody, and so nobody says a word, and then this one guy goes, man, you're going to fit right in, you know, and that was that, you know, so. Where's, where's the Lakota Red? It's in uh, South Dakota, and it's below Rapid City, and uh, so it's, you know, Sturgis, Rapid City, that whole area, and it's below that, and um, it's an extremely violent reservation, by the way. I had come out of Southern California with South Central Los Angeles, and there's a lot of murders and horrible things that take place. I'm not sure that this place is not worse, because I would constantly be reminded that I was white, and did I know where I was going? And I go, yeah. And they go, well, be careful, you know, because there are people stabbing each other and just all kinds of, uh, it's, it's, probably the most neglected reservation in terms of poverty and stuff, you know? So there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, but I really, I don't know, I'm drawn to it. I think it has so much incredible energy there that uh, I look forward to going back in history, yeah. And I have one for you, Robert. So when yes. you were doing all that stuff in Disney, how many people are animated? I mean, how many people are in the studio? Wow. Um, it, it, Depends on whether you're doing a feature film or a Saturday morning show. Okay. Um, feature films, uh, I would say several hundred people are there. I don't know if you've seen that uh, Saving Mr. Banks, but uh, in Saving Mr. Banks, there's a shot where they're photographing him directly, uh, head-on shot, and right behind it, 
there's this building that says animation. Yeah. That's where we worked, and it was it, that was filled. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that's a good movie. Is it? It's still playing, isn't it? I think it's on video or something. You can probably get it. Up. Well, the studios studios totally changed from where I was. Yeah, it's been on for a while. Yeah. Prime, Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Well, you both sort of came from Hollywood in a way, right? We're yeah. Hollywood now people. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Especially this guy. I, <laughs> I didn't hear that. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. No, I. They live in mansions, and you know. No, I, I, I knew a lot of famous people. Um, I never. I was married at that time to my English wife, who was an actress. And uh, I don't know, I just, you know, being in cartoons is a little bit different. <laughs> Although I worked on, uh, we did the special effects, just Josh Metter uh, uh, was, ended up being my boss one time. And we did the special effects for, uh, do any of you remember a film called Forbidden Planet? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. we did. We did. There were three of us. Josh was the animator. I was the assistant. And we had one other kid was an assistant, and we did all the special effects for that. So, and uh, hmm? so we worked in uh, in live action, some live action stuff, some animation. Um, it was really interesting. It was. I can't say that I worked a day in my life, actually. You know, it was from studio to uh, advertising, and I see things today that, that artists don't, or, or, or things, advertisements uh, for products that, I don't know why they're still doing it, but, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that Bob, when he worked for Gray Advertising, I was doing advertising too, photography-wise. And it's, so it's kind of interesting that we never came across each other while we were in Yeah, because the town doing the thing. Art directors work with photographers constantly. The things today that people, uh, when you reproduce a photograph or a painting or anything, what you had to know then is doesn't even exist anymore. The screens, uh, film, what kind of film you're using, what kind of, what magazine it's going in, uh, what kind of paper you're using, a number one sheet number. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, when I started teaching, one of the things that, uh, that we found in, in, uh, uh, in primary colors, Primary colors for art is different than primary colors for photographers, which is different from primary colors in, uh, what was the other one? In uh, print. Yeah. So, you know, there's RGB. Well, you see it on your computers, RGB, uh, CYMK. These stand for, you know, uh, cyan, magenta, black, and there are warm blacks and cold blacks and things that you have to know about color. Uh, 
that don't even exist today. Uh, Chuck and I go back to this quite a way, so I know that working with photographers, how important it was for me to find out, ask the photographers, you know, what kind of film do you want to use? How big is the photograph going to be? What magazine is it going to be in? Uh, whether it's a right reader or a left reader? Because there are rules that when you're taking a photograph that's going in an ad, you have to know whether that photograph of that person is looking left or right because you don't want to put somebody that's looking left on the left-hand page because they're looking right at There's so many things that you learn, but without the photographer, the communication without a photographer, that's why I'm surprised that we didn't work together because we were not only at the studios, but we were also doing stuff for advertising. Um, there's so much art, so much art. How did you guys meet? What's that? How did you guys meet? How did we meet? We met here in Laconner when uh, Nell Thorne was just a uh, market uh, outside small market. restaurant. Yeah, and uh, my wife and I had come up. We weren't living here at the time. And he was sitting at the next table and he came over and introduced himself to us, which I thought was pretty neat because not that many people. Well, they were talking about something about photography or anything and it connected so I had a fight. I said I'm Bob way. Abrams I'm an artist and, and I'm I nosy I want to and know. I went so <laughs> <laughs> that's how it kind of the the relationship took off from there and then when we moved up here we uh reconnected but uh yeah it's yeah, been we fun. hang out the same places same coffee shops it's uh this is a great place in the corner I see, uh, I've, I've lived in big cities all my life, but uh, every time, because I only have one eye now, I go with Chuck and we go shopping, and every time we're coming back into town, I say, look at all that space, isn't it? You know, and you see, um, see a city like New York, I photograph a city like New York, and oh, you shudder. Oh, God, how can people live like that? I guess you live where you have to. But, uh, and this is a, absolutely a great place for an artist, photographers. It's uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, when I first came up here, I came up to talk at the Art Institute of Seattle. And uh, I fell in love with it immediately. And they said, if you ever want to teach up here, let us know. I said, tell me when, I'll be here. <laughs> and we, I was married again to a yeah, we were living in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. <coughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, wild place. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's not, not for art people, you know. It's for hunters and <laughs> that have pickups and dogs in the back. <laughs> And uh, it's, uh, so I, I, oh, I, I moved up here right away. And, uh, I taught at the Art Institute for a couple of years, and then I taught at a college, in, a digital arts college in uh, Everett for a while. And then... Uh, and that's husband, it, Bob. 
<laughs> we're done. These guys are great. Um, yeah. We're done. Before, uh, first of all, thank you very much. Thank I mean, you. This, this is important. Thank you. Uh, just to mention, you you got some more flyers and things on the table. It's just to let you know what the education department is doing. And this summer, we're going to start a music series, and we're doing a lot of hands-on art classes. And so, once That's again, great. trying to get closer to the community and all the visitors that come. So feel free to take something or have any questions for myself or Lauren. Uh, but anyway, we're glad you're here and I hope you're enjoying the show downstairs and up here. And uh, come again. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks.